I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Stocks too stretched, or is a new rally just getting started? We'll tackle that question with the Investment Committee this hour. Joining me, Joe Terranova, Anastasia Amoroso, Surat Sethi, and Steve Weiss. Check the markets. Carl just told you. We're at the highs of the day for the Dow. As we look at the three majors, 10-year note yield, there it is, holding steady. S&P's positive, NASDAQ's dip just negative. So, uh, Steve Weiss, I want to know where you think the, the, the landscape for the, the market is, is right now. When Piper Sandler today says, just given what's happened over the last you know, week or, or so, the uptrend is reconfirmed. They say year-end 48.25. Bespoke points out technicals have gone from bearish to neutral. And J.P. Morgan says remain tactically bullish that the bearish narrative is overstated. Well, uh, Weigh in. yeah, I, I think I mean, sure, you can make that case today uh, that technicals have gone from from bearish to bullish. But what's going to happen if the market turns down tomorrow on CPI and then turns down further on PPI? I'm not suggesting it will I have no idea what the numbers will be. But that's I mean, a some suggest they're going to be good. I mean, gas well, they, prices they come could down be. a lot. Some commodities have come down further. You know, sure, energy's come down. So yeah, that could be it. But my point is that technicals are a fleeting measure of strength in the market. If CPI comes in stronger than expected, then the technicals turn back bearish. So let's ignore technicals. Okay, let's go okay. to the, let's go to the other so, thing so, that JP Morgan said. Then mm-hmm. uh, the bearish narrative is overstated. Is the bearish narrative tired? It's funny how things change so quickly. A month ago, in October, it wasn't overstated, right? It was the bullish narrative that was overstated. So let's take a longer-term view and let's see what happens with the economy because ultimately it's going to be all about earnings and it's going to be about the Fed. So the Fed tightening, nobody, even the debate that's going on now between, is it Morgan Stanley and and Goldman about when the Fed starts to cut? The point is you're still going to have high rates, still going to damage the economy. We're still seeing economic indicators that are particularly relating to the consumer uh, that are troubling. So who knows? So right now, I think it pays. You don't want to sell the quality names that you have. Uh, And in terms of the bullish narrative, it's bullish narrative concerning a very small segment of the market, okay? When you look underneath the market, it's not so bullish, and I think that continues. So I'm staying with the high-quality names that are not as economically sensitive, that aren't depending on refinancing their balance sheets, and I'm comfortable doing that. I'm also comfortable still being 5% treasuries. Okay. Anastasia, has the uptrend been reconfirmed? Has the bearish narrative become overstated and tired? Should you remain tactically bullish? Tactically, yes. I think you should remain bullish. And I do think this market can still drift higher into year end, despite the very strong month that we had and the strong week that we've had. And look, Steve is right. The technicals are fleeting. But if we focus on the technicals and the upcoming catalysts, I think that becomes a much more solid case. And so, of course, the technicals I look to is the fact that we're above 200-day moving average, the fact that buybacks are back into the market. We've got seasonality on our side. You actually have the reason to buy if you're a systematic investor. 
And when you put all those technicals together, that's a lot of what I call a preponderance of evidence, so to speak. The technicals are in your favor. But then, Scott, I have to couple that with fundamentals. And I actually think this week, the data points that we get on the inflation front and also on the retail sales, they might be the catalyst that the markets need to continue this bullish momentum. Because to your point, Oil prices have pulled back, and headline inflation is expected to pull back as well. We should see 3.3 percent last month on CPI versus 3.7 the month before. So that's a positive. And retail sales should be a little bit weaker than I think consensus expects. And there's that CNBC and the National Retail Federation report saying maybe weaker sales, retail sales, but that plays right into the Fed's hands. a little bit weaker consumer, weaker inflation, Fed pause, and I think that perpetuates the solid market technicals. See, Joe, you can't get the the, the bears off of the idea that, yeah, but rates are going to remain higher for longer. Yeah, but the economy is going to slow further. Yeah, but earnings are overstated. I saw our friend Mark Dow on, on uh, social media earlier suggest, wouldn't it be something if, you know, all of that remained true, but stocks still went up? And, and got away from the bears like they have basically done all year. And, and, and here we are, okay? Here we are approaching the middle of November. Here's what I could tell you internally within the market, whether we want to dismiss technicals, dismiss fundamentals, price action within the market is very bullish. When you trade S&P futures, when you trade NASDAQ futures, there's no dips, Scott. The dips are mini dips at best. We had one early this morning. The market attempted to work off some of the over, uh, overbought near-term conditions very quickly. That reversed. Here we are now in positive territory, even for the Russell itself. So that's an indication that a little bit of the chase for performance is there. I think the chase for performance is represented in the semis. Broadcom reached an all-time high on Friday. NVIDIA is not far away from its August 24th, 502 all-time high. The semis are where the chase for performance began. And I think to Anastasia's point, now you transition through the remainder of this week. You hand the baton off to the consumer, CPI, retail sales. But more importantly, we hear from Home Depot, we hear from Walmart, Target, Ross stores, TJX. The baton now gets handed to the consumer and let's see if they could run with it. Zerat. Yeah, look, I agree with with Joe. I mean, I think you could get a scenario where, yeah, but, but it means that the market can go up in that sense. If these numbers come down, come down as we expect, you can have a market saying the Fed is sitting on the sideline. The Fed does not want to make the mistake it made in the past, which is to say kind of everything's okay, so they'll hold back. But if we see the numbers come down and we see that, hey, companies and earnings can actually grow through this, the market can go up from here, especially since we haven't had that breath. As Steve mentioned, they can be other soldiers can take this market higher. You know, it's funny. Mike Wilson, he's he's at thirty nine hundred. He of Morgan Stanley, of course, he's at thirty nine hundred for year end. He just bumped up his twenty twenty four target to forty five hundred. Um, as he suggests for late twenty four, they're looking at seventeen times forward earnings of 266. So, you know, that's a pretty good earnings number, right? 266. But that's a pretty low valuation, wouldn't you say, Weiss, to put on 266? Right. Well, you, you shouldn't get the same 
valuation when you're in a restrictive monetary environment. You just don't. Uh, if you're in free money, then your valuation arguably can be higher than where it is. How restrictive do you think we're going to be mid-year of 24? Um, you think we're still going to be? Mid-year of 24, I think we'll still be restrictive. I think we'll still be restrictive. Not mid-year, you know, maybe, like they'll, so maybe they'll start cutting it. Stocks are going up now as allegedly restrictive as we Certain are. Certain stocks are going up now. Most stocks are not going up now. The breadth just isn't there. As a matter of fact, most stocks are still going down. With the numbers I cited last week on Friday, there are many more new lows being made in both NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange than there are highs. You see, that's why, as I said the other day, Anastasia, you, you can't get either camp off of their, their positioning. Bulls are going to remain bulls. Bears are going to remain bears, and everybody's going to cite all the reasons why they sit in those seats. Can I just clarify my position? Let me clarify my position. I wouldn't call myself a, a dead set bull. I do see opportunities, apparently. I've added to Microsoft. I've added to Humana on flushes. I've added to UNH. I've added to Goldman. Uh, so I don't consider myself, if I were really, really bearish, I could be net short. I could be completely flat. I'm not. I continue to be bottoms up fundamental. I have to pay attention to macroeconomic backdrop, which I'm doing, which informs my view that I don't want to get long certain segments of the market and, in fact, believe that the 5% I can get in treasuries and 6% in other paper is a good place to be while waiting for what I think will be a deteriorating earnings environment. Scott, I mean, I think people may actually be sort of moving from the bearish camp into the bullish camp. But I say that because some of these outlooks came out. And for example, Mike Wilson with a 4,500 target. On well, that's for 20. That's for the end of next for year. For 2024. But that implies that earnings, you, the number you mentioned is $266 on the S&P. Consensus is 242. So that implies that uh, probably Morgan Stanley does expect that growth doesn't capitulate in 2024. And there might be some upside to those earnings revisions. Well, so Oh, okay, let me stop you for a second. I'll give you the ball back in two seconds. On that note, Morgan Stanley's economists, their economic team, are much more sanguine on their view of things than Mike Wilson is on the, on the strategy side, right? I'm looking at their numbers, what I saw today for their numbers uh, for the end of next year. Fed funds rate, you know what their Fed funds rate is? 2.375%. Okay, so that makes that 2.375%, okay? So they get a tick up in the unemployment rate to 4.3. Change in real GDP is 1.4%. So they're still looking for growth. They're not looking for um, a, a recession of, of any magnitude. And core PCE inflation is 2.1%. So their economists have a much more bright outlook on the world than their strategists. And, and by the way, they're not alone. If you look at Goldman Sachs and the outlook that they came out with, it's along the similar lines, and it really looks for this fall in core inflation into the twos. If inflation does fall into the twos, even if the growth and it doesn't fall apart in the United States, even if we don't go into recession, one can begin to argue that the Fed may actually start cutting rates. And of course, if they do, First of all, I think that could support the multiple, but maybe that's what ultimately supports the earnings picture and we get those upwards earnings revisions. So I think there's a bit more bullish skew to 2024, which 
kind of makes me wonder because, Scott, as we talked about the other day, everybody has been expecting a hard landing this year. We got a soft landing. And now seemingly everybody's expecting soft landing for 2024. What happens next? Edgar Denny says, Joe, 4,600 by year end this year, 5,400 by mid-24. Now, he's obviously one of the more bullish people around. But nonetheless, those are his numbers. Recession isn't likely, he says, before the end of next year. You know, we, we're trying to understand where we're going to be a year from now. I think that's very difficult to navigate, in particular during a presidential election year. Uh, but in the in the interim, when you're thinking about where we're going to be skating towards through December 31st, keep in mind last year's tax loss harvesting for individuals not really going to be as strongly present as it was. Buybacks beginning to accelerate as well, and you have a year in which the S&P 500 is up 15%, got the NASDAQ up 30%, and unfortunately, we might not like that. We might not like the fact that we come on the network and we point towards that and utilize that as the reason why an advance can continue, but sometimes that's just how the market works in the near term, and that's exactly the dynamic that's unfolding right now. Portfolio managers are observing that, and they're saying, okay, let's get as much exposure as we possibly can before year's end. We'll worry about 2024 when the calendar rolls into 24. Look, it's a push-pull, right? I mean, the question is, if inflation stays where it is, the cost of capital comes down. And that's where companies and valuation comes at. And that's where Mike Wilson's talking about all the models are saying your discount rate's coming down. So if that is the case, then I do think you get, Joe, to your point, momentum investors are going to come in here in a big way. Does it matter? I asked this question the other day. I'll ask it again because it's the same dynamic today and it may be the same dynamic next week, next month, and who knows what's going to happen next year. Does it matter that small caps are underperforming, Surat, to the degree in which they are? If it doesn't now, when does it? Because, it, you know, you can... You have been able to pick under the surface of the market and say, this is why the market is not healthy. Right. Because look, equal weight S&P 500 performance versus everything else Russell. is horrible. The Russell's, you know, is underperforming. The Russell's down 12% in three months. Right. International, off. I, I do think you can't just have generals lead the market. You do need the others to come up. And it doesn't mean the market comes down. It means that the market can go up higher as well, and the other indexes, indexes can do the, the same. Should you just continue to buy the, the large-cap tech stocks? Uh, Their I, recent performance, by the way, month-to-date is off the charts. Um, NVIDIA's up 19% month-to-date. They report earnings next week. They got this new chip that they're talking about today. Meta, new 52-week high. Microsoft's been basically at a 52-week high, a new, or new all-time high, almost every day of late. Amazon's up 8%. It's up 71% this year. I think you have to buy the others, too. I, I do think you have to dip into stocks that not, have not performed as well. Whether it's yours is Goldman Sachs, mine is Morgan Stanley, or it's Comcast, or some of the others out there that you, you, that still can do well with, with an economy that is going to do better. What if you don't think that they've troughed yet? That's what keeps people out of, out of the small caps. Yeah, but if you know, the economy is going to be weak, why would I want to do that? Those are the stocks that are going to feel the brunt. That's why people go for well, the perceived safety of the, the mega The argument caps. I would have is they're reflecting some of that already in their, in their stock prices. That, that already that stock prices. And so when things actually bottom out, the stocks start going up. We've talked about so many times when stocks go up and all of a sudden the earnings are just at their lowest. Scott, and on small caps, I don't think it's just about the economy, the concern there. I think it's about the financials exposure and the fact that that's a big chunk of the benchmark. And if we're going to worry about defaults and charge us on delinquencies, of course, that's putting financials in the backseat. And then the other issue is leverage. 
you know, you have higher leverage for smaller companies. And, you know, one of the things that gives us pause for next year is if the Fed doesn't cut as, you know, maybe consensus expects and the rates stay where they are, then leverage is going to become an issue with these companies having to roll over this debt at, at higher rates. So I think that's what's also dragging on small caps. And, you know, yes, they're cheap. But, you know, to your question, I think you stick with what's working. You know, Dan Ives, who's very bullish, obviously, on, on tech, says today, we believe the new tech bull market has now begun. Tech stock set up for a strong 24. He gives his picks. Apple, Microsoft, Google, Palo Alto, Zscaler, CrowdStrike, Mongo. Those are all his top picks for, for 2024. Let's just say, Joe, that you believe Ives, right? You're like, well, it's going to be a bull market once again in tech. You going to put money elsewhere, or are you going to go? You going to you you going to go to that area of the market? Well, I think you're going to maintain positioning, and at some point, overweight. You're there. Yeah. So you're going to maintain positioning, and at a certain point, you're going to begin to rotate away from uh, areas in technology, mega caps at overweight positioning. Hold that at market weight. Hold that at equal weight. Explore other opportunities. Um, if you see the dispersion, but I don't see it yet, Scott. So I don't see in the conversation and in the context that you're having that conversation, is it time to look at the Russell? Is it time to look at biotech? Biotech in healthcare has been absolutely brutal so far year to date. Regional banks, is it time to step in there as well? I don't see enough compelling evidence right now. I don't see it in an attractiveness. I don't see the cost of capital okay. turning towards their favor okay. to where you say, now let's you know, go there. You know what my, my comment to that is going to be? You and a lot of other people didn't see the evidence at the end of last year that we were going to have the kind of market we've had this year because tech had such a bad year mm -hmm. that it was going to be off to the races this year. What if we're set up for the same kind of counterintuitive market next year like we had this year where tech has done so well that it takes a, a breath, an extended breath, and then if we do think that the economy is going to hang in there or you're really going to have a soft landing and earnings are going to hold up and rates are going to come down, that those are the stocks that are going to outperform. So the answer to that question is if you want to survive in this business, what you need to do is quickly change, you need to quickly pivot, and you need to quickly recognize those things. And I'm very comfortable that, in fact, that, to your point, at the end of December, I didn't see what was coming, but at the end of April, I did. And I quickly pivoted, I quickly moved. So I could say, we've got NVIDIA on the books at 275 with it approaching 500. How quickly do you want to pivot? Because I know a lot of people haven't made that pivot so far still That's my in point. 2023. That's why, Weiss, we're talking about you know, positioning into year end because in year beginning, people were off sides in a, in a huge way. Not a lot of people saw the mega cap run to the degree we've had it at the beginning of the year. Right, and even though I had some exposure, right, I didn't see for sure, but also uh, those same people stayed bullish all throughout 22 when I was bearish. So who won then? So you can't take a single data point in time and say, hey, you missed it. It's just not fair to anybody. In terms of Dan Ives, let's put it in perspective. Dan Ives follows technology. Dan Ives is not having a broad view of the market where he's doing the analysis of that. He's a very good analyst in technology. However, I happen to agree with him. I don't agree with him that it's as expansive as the list of stocks that he names, that he follows, but I do think that's the place it'll be for the reasons I said before. Will it be other opportunities? Yes. At some point, there is value. I do not believe it's going to be in the regional banks at all, not only because of cost of capital, because of the refunding wave in commercial real estate. There's just no bid well, for I mean, debt there. There's a front-page story today, today's Wall Street Journal, which talks about the pain 
that's you know already being felt, Surat, in commercial real estate. To, to his point, but I mean, people have been talking about the worst fears of commercial real estate for the last, I don't know, year. Whenever the Fed started raising rates, and then we started had the first rumblings of of uh, regional bank issues. Yeah, and I think if you discount that, but it's where's the earnings growth going to come back from the regional banks? So you've got better opportunities, I think, in the bigger banks like the Morgan Stanleys of the world or even, you know, J.P. Morgan's of the world because capital markets activity comes back. That doesn't really help regional banks as much as it helps the big banks. So if that's where we're going, then, then there are places to play that haven't really been rewarded good quality companies that I think are still trading cheaply. Well, because you say you look at those and you say, well, the the potential earnings growth is much greater at this point than it is right. from large cap tech, which is already embedded and discounted in there. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's not to say I don't want to own the other large cap tech. I want to look at other opportunities and I might not be as nimble or as quick to move in there. So I do want to have my positions. And then to Joe's point, if they are start doing well, then you add more to it. And let me clarify one thing on, on the Russell specifically. Um, of, of one thing I am certain, and that is within the next six months, you are going to have a powerful recovery rally in small caps in the Russell, the likes of which they have not witnessed in the last five years. It's coming. It's going to happen. And everyone is going to, at that point, chase price, chase momentum. I don't see the evidence for it, but it's coming. It's clear. And it'll happen. Well, I think for it to happen, Joe, what needs to happen is the Fed needs to pivot. They either need to hint that they're going to cut rates and or change quantitative easing. And when that happens, I agree with you, that's going to be a go all in on risk and small caps. But will it happen and when? And the data could do it before the Fed does it, right? Because if the data starts showing that, hey, the Fed's not going to raise and, in fact, the next step is lower, then you get that rally in the stocks and then the Fed confirms it. So at that point. Uh, I'm sorry. Here's what I grapple with. The market is a discounting mechanism. So I don't, you know, this is just a strange market. You know, the saying, you know, you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it, or this time's never different. But realistically, it is different because of the extended, you know, free money cycle that we had. And the new investors that have come into the market, index funds being dominant, et cetera, et cetera. So it is different. But what I grapple with, the market being discounting mechanism, I do think they're done. Is there one more raise? Sure. Is the damage already done to the economy? Sure. But how far in advance will the market discount it? Or will the market just look through completely? Even if we continue to go towards a recession, I just don't know. So that's why I want to be opportunistic. I'm not playing for the market to trade down 20, 30, 40%. Um, I want to continue to pick up stocks that I find attractive. Unfortunately, the only ones I've found attractive are the ones that I've mentioned, United Healthcare and, and the tech stocks. You know, look, there, it's, it's very much like a, a, a tornado's blowing through. The forecasters are like, oh, man, okay, this is going to be a huge one. But it only knocks out, you know, the windows get get a little banged up. But many people thought that the whole foundation was going to get crushed. Well, it hasn't happened yet. That's that's sort of what we're at, what we're facing at the beginning of this tightening cycle. Well, this is a tornado of of uh, tightening that we haven't seen in a generation in 40 years. So obviously it's going to it's going to blow through and it's going to wreck everything in its path. Well, it hasn't happened because the foundation was stronger than people expected that it would be by virtue of the, all the free money that flew through the system in in the zero interest rate environment. But again, you've outperformed holding treasuries from the beginning of the year. You've outperformed an equal weighted S&P, right, which is pretty much up one percent. 
So you've lost nothing by waiting except for those few select stocks. And, you know, it's... Yeah, but the storm, to the right. same analogy, the storm's going to pass. Right, but it's, it's been, going to blow away. But the downside volatility for, for companies that have missed is unprecedented. It's just unprecedented. They've gotten slaughtered. They're not down 2 or 3%. They're down 20%, 25%. So it's unprecedented. So a wrong move in the wrong stock can really, really destroy capital. Tomorrow we're going to get CPI. And, and look, I, I think that a, a favorable CPI, 3.3 year on year, from, down from 3.7, I think that's already priced in the market. So tomorrow you've got a very high bar to exceed to get excited on CPI. But I also think, to your point, Scott, I don't think very many people expected the disinflationary trend that we have so far in 2023 and for inflation to come down as quickly as it has. And I think that's a nice foundational setup going into 2024 if it continues. All right, we'll take a quick break. We come back up. Uh, call of the day. It's an under-the-radar cloud winner. It's more than doubled the S&P this year. A member of the investment committee owns it. I'll tell you what it is. We'll trade it. Trade some software, too. We'll do that next. Uh, we start our calls of the day today uh, with Oracle upgraded to a buy at Edward Jones. Surat, you own this name. We think shares do not adequately reflect our improved sales growth outlook. We're talking enterprise software here, Surat. We are. So there's a couple of things there. One is cloud acceleration. The other one is they did the acquisition of Cerner last year. That, I think, is going to be another leg of growth for them. The stock trades at high teens multiple at this point when you compare it to all the other software stocks. So people thought, always thought of it as an old-time fuddy-duddy stock, but it does have growth, and it's fairly priced compared to some of its high-priced competitors. Weiss, the IGV, the software uh, sector, is up 42% year-to-date. The S&P software sector is up 52%. We focus you know, on the Adobe's, the Microsoft's, some of the cyber names, the Palo Altos, as we mentioned earlier, and the, and the crowd strikes of the world. It's time to get a little more broad in the way you look at enterprise software. Yes. But Especially related to yeah. AI, where consumer has sucked all the air out of the room for the most right. part. Right. Why is Microsoft up as much as it is? Because of open AI, which is a consumer driven. Right. But um, exactly for what it's adding to their product offering, et cetera, and the attraction of, of being a Microsoft customer. Uh, Look, it's important to understand how I manage money. So I'm not perhaps like everybody else here that I tend to be more concentrated in my portfolio. As Buffett says, diversification is the enemy of performance. Uh, so I tend to be more concentrated. If I ran a more diversified portfolio, I continue to look at names. Software has worked because they're cash cows, high recovering revenues. Yes. They have over 100% recovering revenues, which means new products in addition to the customers recurring. It's, there's no CapEx virtually, right? So they're asset light. So for all those reasons, it's attractive. So they don't need their balance sheets are generally pristine. So that's why they've done well in this environment. And that's why I believe they'll continue to do well, plus the innovation that goes on. So look, the cloud, only 25% of enterprises are in the cloud. So think of everything you need around that. That's software, right? Do you know it takes 20 times as much energy, for example, for an AI search as a Google search, a traditional Google search now? So think of what you're going to need in terms of software products also, not only energy, to accommodate that. Yeah. Well, you said the, the key words, the recurring revenue uh, yeah. model. What about Oracle? 
So the, the challenge that Oracle has had has been the balance sheet, the debt to equity ratio, which is critical to what we do in the quality momentum strategy. Uh, the debt to equity ratio is not favorable. I think you would agree with that. That needs to improve significantly. But just collectively overall, when you look at the IGV, I mean, these are the very purest definition of what quality is, and quality's outperforming. Microsoft is 9.6% of the IGV. Adobe is 8.9%. You have Salesforce. Uh, you have Oracle in there, but you have Intuit. You have Palo Alto. You have ServiceNow. So I I'm not ready to trade away that free cash flow generation in the present. I'm not ready to trade away that quality to go own a longer duration enterprise software name in an environment where the cost of capital still moving target. What about Airbnb, which names a top, was named a top pick today at Bernstein? That's yours. The target gets cut by five bucks to yeah. 163 from 168. So that, that's part of the online travel universe. Um, in online travel, the exposure that we have in the strategy is to Expedia, is to booking holdings. We also have Marriott, we also have Airbnb. This week is a critical week in understanding what the state of the consumer is, not only now, but what the guidance is going to be. Now, as it relates to Airbnb relative to booking holdings and Expedia, there's been price underperformance in the near term. A lot of that is a direct result of management messaging in their guidance that they are seeing demand begin to weaken. I don't know if that defeats overall what is a pretty clean and compelling story for Airbnb. A dramatic improvement in the balance sheet. People look at Airbnb and they say, are they profitable? Yes, this is a company that is profitable. This is a company that's seeing the international expansion. And what's interesting is on the supply side, the supply is now controlled by who? Private equity which is very interesting. And what that does is it creates a nice equilibrium between supply and demand and also keeps uh, the pricing power present. Speaking of dramatic improvements in balance sheets, Surat, how do you like that Uber? Listen, they have done er Uber. everything they have said they're doing. And if you, if you listen to what Joe's saying, if travel is improving, people are going back to the office more, that's right in Uber's sweet spot. And they've really consolidated their businesses into really three businesses. And if they actually look at freight and potentially get out of freight, if it's not profitable, it's gonna be even more profitable. So I think Uber's in that sweet spot now. They're, they're really accelerating their cash flow. Right, let's get the headlines now with Courtney Reagan. Hey, Court. Hi, Scott. Well, the U.S. has launched a new round of airstrikes in eastern Syria on Sunday. The Pentagon said the strikes targeted facilities used by Iran in retaliation for a series of recent attacks on American troops. The officials reported that the operation most likely killed or injured an unknown number of people at the sites. Marianne Trump Barry has died. Sources tell NBC News Donald Trump's older sister and retired judge passed away this morning. Barry served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for two decades before retiring in 2019 amid a civil misconduct investigation related to her family's alleged inheritance tax avoidance. The Trump campaign has not yet commented. She was 86 years old. And The Marvels is a box office letdown for Disney, bringing in an estimated $47 million in its opening weekend, according to Comscore. That's the smallest debut for any movie in the so-called Marvel Cinematic Universe. Scott, back over to you. All right, Court, appreciate that. Thank you. Courtney Reagan, coming up, new player jumping into the ETF business is legendary value firm GMO gears up to launch its first later this week. Our Bob Pisani breaks down the details in today's ETF Edge. We're back in two minutes. All right, now to Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. 
Hello, Scotty. Legendary investor Jeremy Grantham is getting into the ETF business. His firm, GMO, is launching its first ETF, the GMO U.S. Quality ETF. The symbol is QLTY this Wednesday. So let's talk with the manager of that fund, Tom Hancock. Tom, Jeremy Grantham founded GMO, what was it, 45 years ago or something? So why is he getting into the ETF business now and why a quality fund? GMO, very well known as value investors. Why quality? Sure. Thanks, Bob. Uh, so Really, it comes out of our clients. So, of course, ETFs have a lot of taxable advantages, but even our institutional clients like the ease of trading them. And then, secondly, I think the ETF market has evolved, so people are much more willing to accept actively managed strategies in that space. Um, in terms of GMO, yes, we're a value firm, but we're also an intrinsic value firm. We care about buying the right companies at the right price. So focus on higher quality companies has been part of what we've been doing for that 40-year history. Well, you already run a, a GMO quality fund. Uh, we're putting up some of the names that you own here. This is GQETX. How is this different uh, than the quality fund you're going to run in the ETF uh, wrapper? And, and define quality so the viewers understand exactly what you're talking about. Yes, our ETF, QLTY, will differ from the fund through that it's only investing in U.S. stocks. So our mutual fund is global. It has about 20% of its weight outside the U.S. Um, in terms of what we mean by quality, we're focused on companies that can earn high returns on investment going forward. These are big blue chip, co chip companies with moats around their business, strong balance sheets, real fortress companies. Value investing has underperformed growth for years. I mean, 2022 value outperformed, but the S&P growth outperformed S&P value over 20-year periods, 10-year periods, five-year periods, and this year, year to date. It's underperforming again. Value is underperforming. Uh, in theory, we should be seeing mean reversion. You should be seeing value at some point notably outperform, but it's not happening. Can you tell us what's accounting for this persistent outperformance of growth over value? Yeah, well, so many value stocks, if you look at just an index, are old economy, commoditized businesses that just have nowhere to go, whereas all the innovation we've seen in the last few years has been sucked up, really, by growth companies. Now, a lot of these are quality growth companies, and we're definitely participating in that, but it's not so much that value is doing badly. It's that growth is just doing really well. Yeah. GMO famously flagged, uh, Jeremy, several bubbles over the last 40 years. I recall the, the Japanese asset price bubble. They, he, he called that uh, the dot-com bubble. Uh, and even the, the 2000s, the housing bubble uh, as well. Are there any bubbles out there right now? Does GMO see any that we should be aware of? No, we don't really see bubbles now. I think this is one of the more attractive investing landscapes the firm's seen for some time. So in 2024, I want to talk about this on ETF Edge. Stocks over bonds, bonds over stocks. Just give us a quick overview. Um, I'm a stock guy, so I'm always going to say stocks over bonds. Not really about 2024, but just over the long term, and I don't see why that should be any different from the okay. long term. We're going to talk a lot more on GMO's foray into ETFs coming up on ETF Edge at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk more about growth versus value. I'll get a lot more out of him, I promise, and what's in this new ETF that he's managing, and what, if any, asset bubbles may be developing. We'll talk more about that. Also joining us, Nate Geraci from the ETF store etfedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob. Look forward to seeing that. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Straight ahead, getting in on the weight loss drug gold rush. The biggest players in the healthcare sector now scrambling for a chunk of that new business. We'll find out how the committee is navigating it as well next. All right, welcome back. Shares of Pfizer hitting their lowest level since March 2020. The company's obesity pill in focus. Investors are awaiting crucial phase two trial data. Um, what's interesting here is... We don't have that much play 
in what is the hottest sector in healthcare right now. You've got Lilly. That, but that is the hottest. No one's got Novo. Okay. NVO. No one on the show. And I mean, Pfizer's trying to get in on the action. No one owns Pfizer. <laughs> Thank why, God. Why, I know it's been horrible. <laughs> However, uh, just give me your your view. Why? So why my, and where from here? So <clears throat> my <clears throat> excuse me. My view is this. You need water first. No, I'm good. <laughs> my view is that. Unfortunately, in 2023, for the biotech investor, the biotech speculator, where they traditionally would have gone, which is the IBB or the XBI, has punished them. Um, They're both down double digits year to date. In the case of XBI, it's down nearly 20%. So Lilly and Novo are actually trading like a biotech company. And you're able to capture that type of biotech exposure in both of these names. Are they richly valued? Yes. Are they trading off momentum? Yes, in fact, they are. But those are the two areas right now of healthcare where without question you want to be. Pfizer, it is absolutely astonishing to see where Pfizer is right now trading at a 12 PE back to levels that we haven't seen in March of 2020. I still wouldn't buy Pfizer there. I'd rather own Merck. But it's a very narrow, concentrated opportunity set in these weight loss drugs right now in the healthcare sector. Surat, <clears throat> no Lilly, no Novo, no Pfizer. Nope. Why not? Why um, not? Well, Pfizer for the reasons you said, but the other yeah, two. That's the easy out. What, yeah. what about no, the other big, ones? No, because they're momentum stocks and they're ver- they're priced to, to the moon at this point. And look, if I took the other side of GLP, and I think it's great, but we don't really know where it's going to go in the next year or two. All the... If you look at kind of some of the 17% we don't. of 17% of people who take these drugs have diarrhea or, or can't handle it. So as we get more data and we get more competition, will these companies sustain their valuations? I don't know. Look what happened to Moderna and Pfizer during the whole COVID thing. These were the, everybody wanted to own these stocks. And well, then, the, but, the, but the financial dynamics and incentives were completely different for those companies during COVID than these are with well, this. One can argue also, if you look at kind of where we are, if competition comes in, if insurance companies say no, these are priced that, you know, the largest populations are all going to take these drugs at a reasonable price. So I do think they're good companies, but at these prices, what I'm saying is I'd rather wait for them to come down. Weiss. You, you like know, profitable health care. Uh, yeah. You looking at this space? And if not, why? Well, I've got UNH, and, which is one of my large positions, and Humana, which I've been building since, uh, since the miss. Look, if the, if the weight loss drugs work, and they do, what's going to happen? The insurers are going to be more profitable. Initially, the cost of the drugs is going to be expensive. That's going to hit them. But think about what's going forward. And with the government pushing towards value-based health care versus fee-for-service, in other words, you know, the... The, the government, Medicare, Medicaid, and the insurance are now saying, here, we'll pay you X number of dollars for each patient. And to the extent you don't spend all that, that's your profitability. So this will help with that profitability. So yes, there's some bad reactions to it, but overall, if it's presenting, preventing heart disease, if it's getting diabetes under control or preventing it, what's that gonna be? That's gonna be good for you and age because there'll be less significant costs they have to expend. So that's how I'm playing it. Look, if I got in front of Lily early on, um, I'd be there. Great story, but I didn't. Anastasia. 
Yeah, I think healthcare is a timely discussion. And look, you know, it's gotten nowhere this year. The big pharma names are down about 7%. But I do think the obesity drug space is important. For example, 40% of Americans are affected by this, and only 3% are treated by some sort of drug. So it does seem to be like there's a big opportunity set. And by the way, the medical claims associated with that disease are 2.7 times higher. So I think that's why more and more big pharma companies are jumping into the space. From the investor perspective, looking at big pharma, pharmaceuticals, I mean, I kind of start to like the space because you look at the valuations that are trading at 35% discount to the S&P. They are defensive, and it's what's really key is they're trying to grow their pipelines. Why does healthcare not perform? Because it doesn't have that revenue growth because maybe there's not enough new drug launches. If that changes and if the BC drugs pave the way for that, I think that's really compelling. All right, up next, Mike Santoli. He joins us with his midday word. We'll do it after this quick break. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, there he is joining us now. You know, I, I wasn't sure there was going to be much of a reaction uh, from the Moody's announcement on Friday. Apparently, there really isn't today. It's all about CPI, I suppose. It does seem that way, uh, Scott. Most of this year, the story has been, is inflation going to come down faster than the economy slows? And that's been the case right now. Uh, I do think there's, you know, a little bit of suspense about what the mechanical changes to the core measure are going to mean and how the market reacts to that. But to me, disinflation, further disinflation from here is, is kind of the way out of a lot of the things that we're worried about, right? It means that we can be more certain the Fed is done, uh, and, and we now have this economy that might be running 2% or so in the fourth quarter, uh, and that would be a pretty good thing, real, uh, if disinflation comes, uh, comes through okay. So it does seem that's where we are. Um, it's hard to call off the watch on, on yields for any surprises, though, because they have been resilient above 4.5% on the 10-year. You know, I'm thinking the Russell 2000 is really the place to watch tomorrow, uh, because if you can if you if you get your arms around the disinflation story more significantly, you have to believe then you also believe that the economy is going to be able to hold up and that that's the place where you're going to look yeah. for some kind of comeback. Or someone's going to look for an excuse to say the Fed's going to cut sooner. That debate definitely starts up. I think the focus is on the Russell 2000 mostly because it's it's it exemplifies all the divergences that people are very preoccupied with right now, it probably does have to at least prevent sliding any further. Yeah. All right. I'll see you in a little bit on Closing Bell. It's Mike Santoli. Straight ahead, we'll give you the setup for a few key earnings on deck this week. All right, we're back. Some earnings coming up this week. Cisco is after the bell on Wednesday. Surat, you own it. I do, and I think it's going to be a proxy for how enterprise customers are going to be spending money. They're going to actually have a view on the global spending, I think especially given what's happened in the last few weeks. Um, any indication of anything positive will be good for the, for the stock and actually for the sector. Joe, Cisco as well. Yeah, and it's all about AI infrastructure, and we need to understand what, in fact, the orders have been so far in 2023. Estimates for a half a billion dollars. We'll see if it meets that. Stock's only up 10% year-to-date. Mm, yeah. Slow and steady. Yeah. Um, Palo Alto also. Well, that, that's where I get a little bit more excited yeah. than Cisco. Yeah. Uh, Palo Alto on Wednesday. Hey, they're not reporting on Friday afternoon, so maybe that's encouraging. Um, idiosyncratic, that was the story as it relates to Fortinet. A lot of people wanted to extrapolate the weakness from Fortinet on the rest of the cybersecurity trade. Forget that. That has not happened with Palo Alto. That has not happened with CrowdStrike. Enterprise to the cloud is the story. Palo Alto is the leader there. Those are the two names in cybersecurity that you stay with. All right. We will do final trades next. 
I hope you join me. Closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. Cantor's Eric Johnston is back with us as stocks continue to rally. Schwab's Kevin Gordon, Alicia Levine as well. Hope you'll join me then. Steve Weiss, final trade. What you got? Deer, and here's why. If the inflation numbers are soft and rates do come down, Deer is going to explode higher. And if I'm wrong, then frankly, you know, I think Deer is pretty much bottomed out here for now. But you're not, you don't own it again. Yeah. I don't own it again. And Deer does report soon, I think uh, on the 22nd. Okay. Surat. Sticking with Uber, I think you get momentum investors in the stock now. It's got a way to go. Okay. Anastasia? Internet stocks. If consumers are going to shop this holiday season, they're going to do it online. So I'm sticking with those. All righty. Joe T. You do know I like stocks at all-time highs, right? Cadence design, all-time I mean, high. You did coin the phrase, buy high, sell higher. That's right. That's going to happen in cadence. <laughs> All right. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you all on Closing Bell. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.